0: Good morning. Welcome. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 1. And I'll ask you to stand one more time. What I want to read for us or together as a body this morning is Genesis. And you can look up on the screen here, but you can keep your Bibles at one, Genesis 1. We're actually not going to read there together. We'll look at there in just a moment for a study. But if you look up on the screen with me, we'll read Genesis two eighteen through 25 together in unison. and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before You this morning with thankful hearts, with hearts of praise to You for Your greatness. Your glory as the Creator and God of all creation, of all the universe. We pray that we would have a, a more fitting view of who You are and what You have done this morning as we look into Your Word. We pray that what we see in Your Word would change our thinking. It would make our convictions deeper as long as they are already in alignment with Your Word. That You would embolden us to, to speak the truth in love as You give us opportunity. But Father, first and foremost in our own hearts, we ask You to cause our, in, our worship toward You to increase. Our commitment to your, your glory and Your design and Your display in marriage to increase. We pray that You would gain Your will in us, advance Your kingdom, And bring Yourself glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we addressed five reasons why the church must talk about homosexuality. The first sermon in a series of six about the Bible and homosexuality. We talked about the five reasons because God's truth must be known. The Bible is not unclear about these things. The Bible is really very clear and, and really, in many ways, simplistic about these things. Another reason we talked about is because the living God must be glorified and worshiped by his creatures. Men and women and men and women in marriage were created by God to bring him glory. The calling of the church must be fulfilled. Our whole reason that God leaves us here on this earth after saving us is so that we would proclaim the gospel, that we'd make disciples, that we'd speak the truth in love. This is this is our calling. And so there's no, no government mandate that can shut down the calling of a church because the authority by which we do these things is the authority of Christ. And so the, the pressure of the world must be resisted about these things. That was the fourth reason. And then finally, there is a danger to the homosexual themselves. We are called to have the compassionate, loving heart of Christ for for any sinner, including the homosexual, because there is a great danger, not only earthly danger, physical danger, but more importantly, a spiritual eternal danger that that awaits them if they do not repent of their sin. And that's true for any any sinner that doesn't turn to Christ. Now, Now this week, as we continue working through the biblical content that addresses homosexuality, it's important that the first thing we do after talking about the reasons and as we get into the doctrine of these things is to, to discuss clearly a biblical view of marriage. You have to start with that foundation, that backdrop. Otherwise, really the, 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 the nature of homosexuality the sin against God won't make sense as much as it ought to. And before we can accurately and adequately understand any of the Bible's teaching about homosexuality, it's important that we even look back to the book of Genesis. Just as we would lay out a biblical framework, just as our our whole teaching about homosexuality is grounded on a biblical view of marriage, the whole biblical view of marriage is founded in the teaching of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. And we'll look at that as we go. God's response to homosexuality is what it is because of God's purpose for marriage. That's a very important thing for us to understand. And so that's why we're looking at Genesis 1 and 2 today. What we'll find out as we look at this, the teaching about marriage that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 is not culturally transient. I think it's very important that we understand this before we look into this. It's not culturally transient, meaning it's the same for every culture. Marriage doesn't change. Marriage is one of those universal truths that we talked about last week that is revealed in God's Word. It's one of those objective realities that doesn't change because God doesn't change. His purpose for marriage doesn't change. Every culture is called to the same design for marriage it's not culturally transient it's not individually diverse as many would like us to think that it is it's the same for everyone if you if you are a human being made in the image of god then it applies then marriage applies to you and it's binding for you the the marriage design of genesis 1 and 2 it's not unique to a certain time period you say well man marriage this 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 narrative about marriage was written thousands of years ago. It doesn't matter. It's the same for all time. We ask, well, how do you know that? You're saying you're saying those things confidently. How do you know that's true? Well, because the teaching of Genesis one and two concerning human marriage, the reason is is because it's set in the account of creation. It's part of the account of God's creation of man and woman. We could call it a pre-culture thing. It's, it's pre-culture, if you will. And therefore, it's universally applicable to every culture in the human race. The teaching about marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 is set in the creation account. It's universally, unchangingly, unequivocally binding to all humanity and its application. Wherever the human race exists, Genesis 1 and 2 teaching about marriage is applicable and binding. And the other way we know this is because all the other writers of Scripture that refer to marriage, they often refer back to Moses writing about marriage. You'll see Jesus do this. You'll see Paul do this. They don't don't alter anything. They quote right from Genesis and say, this is God's design for marriage. It doesn't change thousands of years later, these writers say the same thing about marriage that Moses wrote. So whatever Genesis 1 and 2 says about marriage is God's objective universal truth about marriage. And so therefore then, whatever violates or whatever seeks to redefine marriage as revealed in Genesis 1 and 2 is an affront to God's holy design of marriage and the purposes of God in marriage. And so it's an offense to God Himself. So let's look at the design of marriage today from Genesis 1 and 2, and and the things that I've been saying hopefully will become more clear to you. The main idea that I want you to see from the text today is simply this. We must submit ourselves to God's unchanging truth about marriage. The definitions of marriage as it is revealed in the Bible. Now why? And there's two points today that we will see in your outline, in your bulletin. Number one, God Himself has designed marriage. God Himself has designed marriage. The first part of this that I want you to see in in our Scriptures today is that the participants of marriage are God's design. It's, it's God's design. We have to begin, when we think about our worldview, when we think about marriage, we have to begin with Genesis 1.1. That is, that is the foundation of our biblical worldview. What does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning, what? God. Don't let the familiarity of that verse escape you when it comes to these matters of universal truth. Before any of us existed, there was God. The eternal, uncreated Creator. The omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, King of the universe. And then He created all things. Right? And so therefore, He owns all things. This eternal, sovereign, holy God said, let there be and there was everything that matters about everything in life, right? That makes a big difference. It's, we, we ask the question, well, who is God? Is He such an arrogant being that He would demand all of us to live a certain way? Well, who is He? He is the Creator. He's the eternal King. He gets to be that. There wasn't a vote, right, when He created. Let's make Him God. He just is because He's eternal. He's never had a beginning, never have an end. He just is, and everything else in him lives and moves and has their being. So that means he's king. All authority belongs to him. That means we belong to him and are to live under his holy reign with everything. And and you know what? Here's the beautiful thing about that that I'll show you in a text in just a moment. That's not a terrible thing. To live under the reign of God is the most delightful existence there is. Why? Because He is the embodiment of perfect goodness. That's why it's a delight. You don't want to be the ruler of the universe. You don't want me to be or anyone else to be the ruler of the universe. You don't want the evil one to be the ruler of the universe. You only want one person to to hold that position, and that's the holy, sinless, good, glorious God. Psalm 100, 1-3 says this, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with what? Gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. We are His. Think of the richness of these words. The depth for even this topic that we're talking about. We're His. We're His people and the sheep of His pasture. You know what? It calls all of us in this same text to to serve the Lord, to make a joyful noise to the Lord, to, to sing to Him. And it says later on, because the Lord is what? Is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. God has designed and created marriage, not we. And it is in His good hands. And there we must leave it and not change it or try to change it. So let's look at what God did when He Himself designed marriage, particularly as it relates, letter A, to its participants. Genesis 1:26 26 is, And God said, Let us make man in our image, Right? That word man is speaking of humanity after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, humanity in His own image. And when He created humanity, man in His image, what did He do? In the image of God, He created him male. And female, He created them. Right off the bat, when you see God creating man in His image, you see God creating a male and a female in relationship. In a unique relationship, which is described in more detail in chapter 2. You see, verses 26-28 talk about the creation of man from an from a overview, from a, from a, a high view of, But then you look in chapter 2 of Genesis and it talks about that same creation and it just zooms right in and slows down the camera and it says here is what God did then specifically when He created humanity as a male and female together in relationship. In verse 28, you see the purpose of marriage. We'll talk about in just a moment. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now notice here in this text that when God created man, He created what? Male and female in relationship. Two participants. Male, female in relationship. Now let's zoom in, slow the camera down. Genesis 2, 18-25. Let's see what God did more specifically. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. As a man by himself, God said, I want him to have a helper fitting for him, corresponding to, complementary, not the same as him, different than him, but in a unique, corresponding, complementary relationship. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And so out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fitting for him. A complementary helper, a corresponding helper of all the other creation that God had made, there was not the right helper for the man. Not the fitting corresponding helper. Including another being like Adam himself. Not fitting. So, what did God do? The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, He took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, He made into a woman. Of course, that's what the name woman means. From man. Because that's how God created woman. And brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now notice the the change in the tone. Very important here verse 24 and 25. It's like Moses is panning away a little bit from the specific narrative account of Adam and Eve's creation and creation in relationship to making an application to every man and every woman. You've got to see this. so important. The story ends. The application begins. Therefore, a man, any man, shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Then it goes back to talking about, in this specific case, Adam and Eve. God made one man. God made one woman from the man. God brought that woman to the man. And this is how God created marriage. It's really that simple i love the simplicity of this text and this text is the foundation the definition the precedent for the rest of scripture when god created marriage this is what he did one man one woman in a covenant relationship nothing else in mar- nothing else is marriage because god did not create any other kind of relationship when he created marriage Nothing else is called marriage in the Bible. This is what the Bible reveals as marriage. Any relationship that poses as marriage or is a physically intimate sexual relationship that is not according to this design, one man, one woman in a monogamous relationship, it's a violation of marriage. If it violates the design of Genesis 1 and 2, it's a violation of God's design for marriage. And that's why we must say then that homosexuality inherently violates God's design for the participants of marriage. If it is two men or two women, that's not marriage. That's a violation of God's design and will. This is God's design and will for marriage. One man, one woman, in a monogamous relationship, in a covenant relationship. Secondly, letter B in your outline. Notice the purposes of marriage are also God's design. The purposes of marriage. I want you to look back again at Genesis 1. And this time we'll really focus in here on verses 27 and 28. Look at the purposes of marriage. The purposes of marriage are God's designed. Why did God create, when He created humanity, one man, one woman, in this unique relationship? The purposes of marriage. Verse 27, so God created man in His his own image. In the image of God, He created him. What did He create? Male and female in relationship. And verse 28, and God blessed them. He blessed the male and female. And look what God said. God's command to the male and female that He made is a blessing. It's a blessing. And He said to them, be fruitful multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. Realize that these words here, though in some degree they may sound a little bit like, well, really? That's the purpose of humanity? Yes, that is the purpose of humanity. Think about those words. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. What what is God after here? God intends and intended for marriage to multiply his image and likeness and glory in the earth and expand the blessings of his good reign. God made a man and woman in his image, and he said, All right, you two be fruitful, multiply, make lots of image bearers. Multiply them over the world. Let My glory be reflected in more image bearers. Those who are like Me. But not Him, of course, but like Him. His likeness. Do you see that? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And He created them with a capacity to multiply. To fill the earth. To, ex- to subdue it and have dominion. To, to extend His reign. One man and one woman to work together, to fit together, not because they are the same, but because they are different and perfectly complementary. I want you to notice as we look here again in Genesis 2 18 through 25, God said, I will make a helper fit. Again, that word fitting, helper fitting, the idea there is not two the same, but two that are different but corresponding, complementary, so that as a result of their becoming one, right? they too shall become one flesh, as a result of their becoming one, because of their uniquenesses, because of their complementary nature, they can multiply and fulfill God's purposes. And it's through that complementary oneness, particularly in a physical sense, that children, more of God's image bearers, come into the world. It's a beautiful thing that God has done. It is through that complementary oneness between one man and one woman fitting together in that oneness in a spiritual sense that children are brought up and nurtured in the ways of the Lord. And they learn to enjoy God's love. And God's reign so that they desire to expand the blessings of God's good reign over the world. This is is one of the most blessed reasons that God created marriage. For two people, correspondingly different, to become one and bring more of God's image bearers in the world. You know that's your calling, husband and wife, if God enables you to do that? right? That's that's a joy, that's a blessing. Isn't it? It amazingly clear how God designed marriage to be to be a perfect fulfillment of his, of his purposes? Absolutely, right? This, this is, the, this is the, the, the nature of marriage in God's creation. But here's the thing: homosexuality inherently violates both God's design and purposes for marriage. Not one homosexual couple can enjoy a complementary oneness on every level. Every relational level, as God has purposed for a marriage. A homosexual couple cannot be fruitful and multiply, right? By bringing into the world more children, more of God's image bearers. and That's impossible. A homosexual couple cannot bring up children in the nurture and instruction of the Lord so that those children may reproduce what their parents are doing and extend the blessings of God's reign in the earth. And that's why homosexuality inherently violates God's will for marriage and it is a sin against the Holy God. So, homosexuality clearly violates God's design or for, the, for, the, for the participants of marriage and for the purposes of marriage. It is impossible for a homosexual couple to fulfill God's purposes for marriage. Therefore, it's not marriage. Thirdly, let her see the duration of marriage is God's design. I want you to look at Matthew nineteen three through six. The duration of marriage is God's design, and this is one of those situations where we see Jesus referring to the Genesis account. Matthew 19:3 through6, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, "Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Can we just divorce whenever we want to?" And that, that's what the culture was doing in Jesus' day, like, like ours. Ours is not so much removed from that. And there were things written down in, 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 uh, in historic accounts where a man could divorce his wife for burning dinner. You yeah, I mean, it's really ridiculous, the things. And, and we see a lot of that to some degree nowadays as well. And Jesus answered, Have you not read that He who made them from the beginning made them male and female? You see? See what Jesus is doing? He's reaching all the way back, thousands of years earlier, and saying what Moses was inspired to write in Genesis, that's the truth. Haven't you read? Don't you know the truth? Don't... This is is the reality about marriage. That God created them from the beginning. He made them male and female. And He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see what Jesus did? He drew upon the, the, the creation account in Genesis, and then He makes an application. See, when we read in Genesis that the two shall become one flesh, what we're talking about there is that two different people become one new entity. It's an amazing thing, marriage. It's a covenant that God creates. And so Jesus says, they're not two anymore. They're one flesh in God's eyes. This is a creation covenant that God makes between a male, one male, one female. And so Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what's the duration of marriage? One man, one woman, monogamous relationship in a covenant that lasts how long? For life, right? Till death do us prior, right? That's it's part of our marriage vows. God joins them together, and no human being is to separate that marriage. Men and women are violating this exposition and command of our Lord left and right nowadays, yes? Those who enter into marriage and those who legally perform marriage marriage covenants most often view marriage nowadays as disposable. And that's made unmistakably evident by things like prenuptial agreements. What is that? Right? Safety net for assets in case of divorce. It's like you're going into it ready to bail out and still keep your stuff. Right? Wow. Or no fold divorce. Right? Is marriage so cheap that the reason for divorce doesn't even matter anymore? No-fault divorce. The way men and women don't even bother to get married before they begin to live together or behave like married couples, at least on a physical level, that that indicates that marriage is, take it or leave it, disposable. And you know, the, the homosexual community has absolutely no regard for God's design for marriage, let alone His commanded duration for marriage, dear ones. So many men and women have entered into a legitimate marriage one man with one woman, only to break that covenant to pursue a homosexual relationship. I bet all of you have have heard of something like that. And while pursuing their homosexual desires, they often go from partner to partner to partner. Let me share with you again some heartbreaking statistics from multiple sources. Multiple sources have shown that homosexuals have an average of eight partners every year. That's an average. 43% 43% of white male homosexuals have had sex with 500 or more partners over their lifetime. 500. 28% have been with a thousand or more partners over their lifetime. 79% said that that half of their partners more than half of their partners were complete strangers. Less than 2% said they have a monogamous relationship compared to 80, 83% of homosexuals who do not repulsive must this be to God calling this marriage governments mandating that it be called marriage so whether it is one man and one woman who treat the marriage covenant like a wishbone or a homosexual lifestyle both are violating God's command design and duration for marriage you can see here that the the participants of marriage are God's design: one man, one woman, in a relationship, monogamous relationship. You see, you see the um, <clears throat> you see the purpose of marriage that God created us to be fruitful and multiply. You see also the duration of marriage, and number four, letter D: the parameters of marriage are God's design. The parameters. I want you to look back then again at Genesis chapter two. Verses 24 and 25, the parameters, God puts some protective boundaries around this relationship. Let's start in verse 23 again. We get the Genesis account. Then the man said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And it's applied here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. Two complementary beings becoming one new being in God's eyes. They fit together perfectly. Being different. They fit together to become one. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is the the example of their oneness. They were naked and shameless. Moses is, like I said, moving slightly away from talking about Adam and Eve to talking about any man and wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. And these words show a clear application of the creation account of marriage to the entire human race without exception that's how we know this isn't just talking about adam and eve it's talking about every human being who enters into marriage because this is god's creation this is god's design this is god's purpose and god's will for marriage in the human race that's why 24 verse 24 must happen this is god's design for marriage genesis 1 through 223 and therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they will become one. This is why this must happen, because God designed it this way. And there's no other human relationship that is described as one flesh. Is there any other relationship, human relationship described by those words in Scripture at all? No. Just the marriage relationship. One flesh. The the participants, the, the purposes of marriage, all of it in God's creation works together to have this one flesh relationship. Two different entities becoming one new thing. Therefore, the oneness and intimacy of marriage must be protected from any other relationship that would compete with it or disrupt the unity of that marriage. This is a precious and important one-flesh relationship, it must be protected and guarded. No other human relationship takes a higher priority than this one-flesh marriage relationship. you understand that? Notice how it says here, therefore a man shall leave father and mother to hold fast to his wife. They become one-flesh. There's a, There's a leaving of other relationships and even other primary relationships to prioritize the relationship that is described by one flesh. That means parents, right? Yes, parents take a second seat to that one flesh relationship. What about children? Yes, children are to take a second priority to this one flesh relationship. That's probably the more difficult one to do. To keep in the right priority. Friends, co-workers, buddies, girls, right? They all become secondary to this one flesh relationship. And anyone who has ever had any experience with marriage understands it's so easy for other relationships to compete with your marriage relationship and therefore that priority of the marriage relationship must be actively guarded and nurtured. One flesh, One in every relational level. It's so easy to let things compete with that. But not only must the oneness and intimacy of marriage be protected from competing relationships, but also the oneness and intimacy of marriage must be enjoyed but within its god-given parameters it actually must be enjoyed physical intimacy must be enjoyed every level of relational intimacy must be enjoyed but only inside the god-given parameters and therefore protected from any kind of sexual relationship or 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 Uh, competing relationship that, that is not according to this creation account. Again, God designed one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship to enjoy union on every relational level. To truly be one flesh. To hold each other as one flesh. And to have no barriers between them. Not even shame. I love how that text says that in verse 25. They were so one. There was no barrier between them. Not even shame. And therefore, in order to live inside God's parameters for marriage and to enjoy the shameless intimacy that God intended for married couples to enjoy, all violations of those parameters and boundaries must be avoided like the plague. Well, what are they? Well, There's a few texts that help us to understand this, but one is premarital sex, right? Sex before marriage. Adultery, sex with someone who's not your spouse, homosexuality would violate this. And any kind of sex that is not between one man and one woman in a monogamous relationship, a covenant marriage relationship. And of course, the Apostle Paul affirms this. Notice, 1 Corinthians 7, 1-5. through 5. Now concerning matters about which you wrote, he's, Paul is writing back to the Corinthian church and it appears that they wrote him or communicated with him in some way and had questions. And he says, it's not good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman. What? Well, he's talking about before marriage. That's that's a boundary that God has created so very clearly in His Word. It's not allowed. But, because of the temptation to sexual immorality then, so he's calling... Sexual intimacy before or outside of marriage. He's calling it sexual immorality. Each man should then have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you can't refrain from those sins, then God would encourage you to be married in His will. The husband should then give to his wife her conjugal rights. And, and this is a beautiful picture because it's not only that God says, "All right, no intimacy in this way outside of marriage, but once you're inside this marriage relationship, it must be enjoyed and given freely. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does such a freedom that God creates here. And it's protective. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then let them come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This text is so abundantly clear. Right? Marriage is designed not only to fulfill God's purposes positively, but also to be a protection against sexual immorality. And so that husbands and wives can fulfill God's good plan for their marriage. And then that's why Paul says what he says in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These things that violate the boundaries and the parameters of of God's intention, of God's creation in marriage, are a sin before the Holy God. That means homosexuality also violates God's parameters for marriage. That's why we call homosexuality. That's why God calls in His Word homosexuality a sin. So first, understand the participants of marriage are God's design. One man, one woman. The purposes of God's design are His creation. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion. The duration of marriage for life and the parameters of marriage. Only sexual intimacy to be enjoyed inside marriage. And here's the thing, homosexuality violates all four of those parts of God's design for marriage. And that's why it's a sin against God. Does that make sense? It's very important for us to understand this. Now, there is another profound reason why we must submit ourselves to God's unchanging truth about marriage revealed in the Bible. There's another reason. One more I want to talk about this morning. And, and why, why homosexuality is then a sin against our holy God. Number two, God has displayed Himself in marriage. God has displayed Himself in marriage. Why do we exist? We exist to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right? We, we know that from different confessions of the faith, but the Scripture also teaches that. Matthew 6.9 That's so what we pray. Our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed be Your name. That's, that's, that's the substance of our prayers. That's the priority of prayer. God, exalt Yourself in my life. Do what you will to exalt yourself, advance your kingdom so that you're glorified, let your will be done so that you're glorified. Give me what I need today to live in such a way that it's glorifying to you. Everything about the Lord's prayer points and facilitates that first request. Hallowed be your name, honored be your name, exalted be your name. Romans 11:36. From him, through him, and to him are all things; to him be the glory. 1 Corinthians 10:31. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the reasons for this is the reason for our existence, ultimately. And so all of life and all of the gifts of God are, are not ultimately about us and our enjoyment, but ultimately for the display of the greatness and the goodness of God. And whether we believe it initially or not, it's absolutely true. That display the display of the goodness and greatness of God is our greatest joy. It is our greatest satisfaction and delight. Everything that God gives us in life, life itself is ultimately for God in His glory. So, since that is true, it stands to reason that marriage is not ultimately about us and about our enjoyment through our fruitfulness and though it is, our fruitfulness and joy is a byproduct of God's good gift of marriage. First and foremost, marriage is about who? It's about God. And that is honestly probably the biggest error that we make when we come into marriage. We enter the marriage relationship thinking, this is going to make me happy. Don't we? I mean, that's that's if you if you remember back the day you got married. It's true for all of us. I haven't yet met anybody who's got this together when they're coming into marriage. But we think, man, this is going to make me happy. They're such a great person. They understand me and they meet my needs and they're just, it's just everything. You, you make a list of of how this marriage is going to benefit you and your happiness, and it's huge, right? And so you. You proceed on that basis, and all of a sudden you realize that marriage is all about giving of yourself for a different reason. Well, we should, we must realize that, otherwise, our marriages are going to be a wreck, right? Because they require everything from us. First and foremost, marriage is about God. Marriage was designed, listen, marriage was designed for the display of the greatness and the goodness of God. That's the whole point you see back in Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image. What did He make? Man and woman in this relationship. It's about God's image. It's about God's glory. It's about God's likeness being extended and glorified and enjoyed in the earth. And so if you are a true believer in whom the love of God has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit then you are learning to love God as He has loved you, right? You're learning that. Your heart's beginning to change. And the single principle of marriage being for God's display can carry you through it, will carry you through the most difficult times in your marriage relationship. Because then you think, I'm not bailing out on this relationship because it's not about me. It's about God's glory. It's about the display of God's greatness and His love. It changes your expectations about marriage. Getting this one foundational principle in our heart by the Holy Spirit changes everything about marriage. It changes your mindset. It's a powerful transformation in the life of a married couple to realize that their marriage exists not ultimately for their fulfillment, but for the display of the glory of God whom they love more than they love themselves or each other. You see, this is so incredibly important. and this is not something we just get down. We have to keep pursuing it for the rest of our lives. I could hear someone asking, you mean marriage isn't ultimately about me? My fulfillment, my happiness, and my identity, and my getting my way in my life? Sometimes people enter into marriage not so much about that they love the person they're married even for... The, the, the desire to pursue this ideal of what they want to become. No, no, dear one. It's Marriage is ultimately for God. It's about Him. And for God and for His display of His greatness and goodness. Well, how does that work? Well, God didn't make marriage first and foremost for us and then as an afterthought decide Let me see. What have I made here? And what can illustrate my love? No, no, that's backwards, right? And then, you know, oh, well, marriage will work. Let's throw that in there. No. God made marriage for the purpose of displaying his love. That's the whole point. That's the overarching point. Everything else is secondary and tertiary. God didn't make marriage and then have it display His steadfast love as a coincidental afterthought. God designed and created marriage first and foremost as a powerful visual display of His steadfast love in the earth. And then secondarily, for our fruitfulness and joy, God designed and created marriage so that other men and women and boys and girls and our children, could look at our marriages and see the steadfast love of God. That's the point of it. There's nothing better that communicates it than that marriage relationship. It's a powerful picture of the love of God for His people. Let me show you what I mean from two different texts. Letter A, God's steadfast love for His people is displayed in marriage. Look at this. Hosea text hosea two fourteen through twenty and I know you ladies are studying this text wow, what a picture of God's steadfast love. you know how Israel's been right through this through this Old Testament narrative God has just unleashed his goodness on them and blessed them and called them out of all the nations of the earth and and they just keep wandering away after false gods and all manner of sin just like we do. And look what God says. It's, it's astounding. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's talking about himself in Israel. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer, as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Do you see what God's saying there? It's very interesting. It's kind of like the way we talk. It's like, now I want to have a relationship with her again, like when we were dating. That's a little different. I, I, I don't want to be trite in anything I'm saying here, but that's what God is saying like, just when I brought her out, just when I married her to myself, she's going to talk like that again toward me. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. Right? God was Israel was pretending to worship God in idolatrous ways. And he says, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know that I am the Lord. You shall know the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? That's how God talks about His people. And what is He using to illustrate His, his steadfast love? Marriage. He's talking in marriage language. That's what mar- This is what marriage is about. To show the steadfast love of God. What does that word steadfast mean? It, it keeps going. It doesn't give up. It, it's promised and it's never withdrawn. It, it fights through the worst of it. That's the way God has been with His people all through redemptive history, has He not? He keeps winning His people. He keeps wooing His people. That's what we see here. We see the Lord choosing these people from the nations of the earth. We see Him pursuing these people. Even in their sin, we see Him wooing them by His Word and away from other gods. Isn't that what God does for us? Look at that, verse fourteen. I will allure her. God is pulling us to Himself. I will, and I will speak tenderly to her. God is. He doesn't have to do this. <laughs> he doesn't know us this, and yet He takes the time and and put he, His energy cannot be drained. But I want to say He puts all of this effort into wooing us away from our false gods. Oh, we do not deserve this. We do not deserve this. He he makes a covenant with us. You will call me my husband. I will remove the names of your false gods from your mouth. You're not even going to remember them anymore because of my steadfast love for you. I will make a covenant with you. He provides for them. He protects His people in love. He removes the threats of of war from the land. He makes us lie down in safety. His promising righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness and intimacy clearly here Biblical marriage is used by God as an illustration of His steadfast love for His people. It becomes a living display of God's love wherever biblical marriage is enjoyed. That's the goal. That's the purpose of it. That's the point. And the Apostle Paul takes that truth one step farther. In the New Testament, you know, Ephesians 5, right? Let her be. Christ's love for His church is displayed in marriage. Ephesians five twenty two. Wives submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, His body, and He Himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything in everything to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. For no one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave... That sounds familiar, doesn't it? There we see it again. Paul's reaching all the way back to Genesis. It, It... It's it's not limited to any culture. It's timeless. It's universal. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as he loves himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice that every command in this text, commands to the wives, or commands to the husband, they're all rooted. They're all rooted in this greater reality of the relationship between Christ and the church. Have you noticed that? They're all rooted in that greater reality. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands, the head. Why? Why? Why should we do that? Verse 23 and 24, because that submission, that's why we have the little word for, submit. Why? Because the husband is the head of the church even as Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. That's the why the submission and headship displays the headship and salvation of Christ to His church and the submission of the church to Christ. That's why. That's the reason wives can continue to submit even when it's extremely difficult because they think, I love my Savior. I don't like my husband right now, but I love my Savior. And I want to show all of my family, my children, my church, my world. The kind of relationship that exists between Jesus and His church. That's why I do this. See, So then that kind of submission requires love for who? Love for Christ. Not ultimately for your husband, although that's commanded as well, but it's all about love for Christ and His display. And the same thing for the husbands. Husbands, love your wives, right? Love. There's the command. Why? How do I do that? And Why? Verse 26 and following. All detail how and the answer of why is just like Christ loved His church. You, you, love, you love your bride just the way Christ loved His bride and because Christ loved His church in this way. That's why. So even when the wife is not behaving well and... It's just the way it is in marriage. Husbands and wives don't behave, right? Why do we continue to pursue this marriage relationship? Because it displays the love and submission of Christ and his church. And that is why, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, and why two become one flesh. In other words, marriage was made from the beginning to display the love between God and His people or Christ and His church. And Paul nails that point so clearly that in verse 32. Look at it. This mystery is profound. What mystery? The mystery of, the mystery of two different people who are complementary becoming one new entity. That is a mystery. It's profound. And it does what? It refers to Christ in the church. It exists toward Christ and the church. It points toward Christ and the church. The marriage of Genesis 1 and 2 was brought into being to put on display the steadfast love of God for His people. The covenant relationship between Christ and the church. The ultimate purpose of marriage is made clear right here in these verses. The reason the creation of marriage is clear. Do you see it? Now let me add just a few applications of this principle. This is why, listen, this is why the presence of sin, any sin, in a marriage relationship doesn't mean the end of the marriage or the end of the world. The presence of sin actually provides an opportunity for God's love to be displayed even more profoundly. God's steadfast love glows with glory as it continues to be steadfast and sacrifices for the good of the ones who have sinned against Him. Think about it. Romans 5, 6-11. When did God show His love toward us? By dying on the cross. When we were good? When we behaved well? No we were sinners, when we were ungodly, when we were His enemies. And there's no better opportunity for a marriage to display the sacrificial, saving, steadfast love of God in Christ than when one or the other spouse is behaving weakly or sinfully or in an ungodly way or even like an enemy and the offended, faithful spouse continues to love and continues to sacrifice for the reconciliation and restoration of the offending spouse, you see how this works. That's marriage. It refers to Christ and His Church. It refers to God and His His people. Consider this, dear ones. <laughs> There's another thought uh, that I was meditating on. Because marriage is a display of God's love, that's why there'll be no more marriage in heaven. What I've always wondered that, like, why won't there be? oh, come on, no marriage in heaven? Well, think about it. If marriage is the illustration of God's love on earth, when we get to heaven, that illustration will be exchanged for what? The reality, right? We will be in the very presence of Christ. No more illustration needed. There He is. And we will experience the fullness of His love. Just like, just like He prayed what happened at the end of John 17. And finally, and I know you I know you know we were going here. All of this, all of what I'm saying is what makes homosexuality so profoundly repulsive to God. It perverts and it putrefies The display of God's love like this that He intends through the Genesis 1 and 2 marriage. Doesn't that make perfect sense? That the homosexuality doesn't do this. And that's what marriage is all about. It refers to Christ in the church. It refers to God's love for His people. One man, one woman, in a unified marriage monogamous covenant relationship. That's what God intended to be the illustration. Nothing else. And so we must submit ourselves to God's unchanging truth about marriage as revealed in the Bible. Beloved, those two principles are everything. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is God's display. That's the foundation of the rest of our teaching for this this series. And it matters because Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, what? God. That's the point. That's our biblical worldview. That's where we start. That's the foundation. I'd like to close this morning with an appeal to the man or woman who is living in a homosexual lifestyle. Maybe someone's listening online. Maybe someone here in this room even that we don't even know. Marriage exists to display the unfailing love of God. When you redefine marriage and make it about your own selfish gratification, you end up completely distorting marriage. You actually end up disappointing yourself even and destroying the display of God's love that He intends for marriage. More importantly, you are sinning against God when you do not submit yourself to God's unchanging truth about marriage. And you're rebelling against God's design for marriage. And rejecting God's intended display through marriage. And you know what? That's sin. And it's worthy of God's eternal judgment. Just like any other sin and violation of God's holy law. It's very, very serious. But God is merciful. God is a God who is merciful and and loving toward all who are willing to turn from their sin and to embrace His truth. He promises to be. The very steadfast love of God that is displayed through the design of marriage can become your refuge and your place of rejoicing. It isn't marriage you need as a person struggling with homosexuality, it isn't marriage that is your Savior. It isn't heterosexual marriage even that is your Savior. That's not going to satisfy. And it certainly won't satisfy the wrath of God against your sin. Only the love of God can do that. In love, God sent His Son Jesus to take the guilt of your sins and the full measure of your, punishment of, of your punishment upon Himself and give you His righteousness so that you could stand guiltlessly and joyfully in God's presence and experience His love forever. And that's why Jesus died on the cross and lived an obedient life to God's law and rose again from the dead. He did that to make sinners like you and like me holy and pleasing to God. You can experience God's saving and loyal love today if you will turn from your sin. Even homosexuality. He saves people from that all the time. And trust in Jesus and what He did for you to make you God's child. And then one day you as well can be satisfied in the steadfast love of God. And I pray that you will that you will turn to God and trust in Christ today. And before I pray, listen to God's invitation to you to turn from sin and enjoy His love. Because that is an invitation. God extends to every sinner broadly to turn from sin and enjoy His love instead. Listen to this. Isaiah 55, 1-7 Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, Come. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to Me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to Me. Hear that your soul may live And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. What a glorious invitation that is. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Our Father, we look at the words of this invitation and we, we we come. We come. We keep coming. Teach us to quit eating things that don't satisfy. Spiritual idols of the heart and the soul. Father, only You satisfy. Only knowing You and Your love through Christ. May we all take to heart these words that we would turn from making, making an idol out of marriage, misusing it, mishandling it the way that we feel it should be in order to gratify ourselves. Father, we all do this in some way. Father, help us to see marriage for Your design and Your display. And know that You will satisfy us. You will satisfy us. In Your love, as we seek by Your grace to live out marriage according to Your will and Your design, thank You for Your, your, your steadfast love, Your endless invitations to Your chosen people. Father, we are not worthy of this. You are so good and so faithful. May we we forsake our ways. May we forsake our thoughts and turn to You. Thank You that You abundantly pardon through Christ. I pray that the one who has not yet come to Christ would come today and find this salvation in Jesus and be satisfied. I pray for the one, whoever may be listening today that is struggling with homosexual attraction. and Father, I pray that You would grip their heart and help them to know that Your love satisfies. The things of earth break. The things of earth are corrupted. The things of earth grow dim, but You do not. And You can love and cleanse and renew and restore any sinner who trusts in You. Thank You, Father. You are so kind. You are glorious. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, your Son. Amen.